Okay, let's get going. We're doing quite well for time, so um, we don't have to rush through this or anything. Acute coronary syndromes I'm going to talk about now. One of my favourite topics. like it very much. Um, I hope you like it too. And so what causes acute coronary syndromes? What are they? We're going to talk about the definitions and a bit of pathophysiology. It's all about atherosclerosis and atherosclerotic heart disease and ischemic heart disease. There's sort of three main components that I put here in a nice kind of Venn diagram. In the middle should be atherogenesis, but it's a syndrome that involves inflammatory elements, thrombosis and abnormal lipid metabolism. Useful to have that in the back of your head. This isn't the only cause of acute coronary syndromes. There are other causes. I might mention them a bit later. But essentially, this is the diagram that you'll see in most textbooks. Um, in, and it starts you know, around the third decade, and you start with these fatty streaks. I'm not going to talk about this. You can go and see this in the books. But basically, within the intima, uh, you start getting lots of fatty things, and they can rupture and cause lots of things. But I like to take a very simple approach. You, the ABC approach, I like ABC, um, Sesame Street was one of my favourite programmes when I was growing up, so I like this approach. And it starts with an atheromatous plaque, gets big. Some of them are large and unstable, and some of them aren't so large. So you might think that someone with a very big atheromatous plaque, approaching more than 50% into the lumen, would be one to be risky, but not necessarily. People have stable angina with a big plaque, over 50% encroachment on the lumen, and they're fine. They, they can just walk about, they get a bit of chest pain when they exert themselves, but if they sit down, it stops, it goes away, and they never have a heart attack. Whereas about half, 50% of all acute coronary syndromes happen with plaques, less than 50% encroachment on the lumen. So young people perhaps can have an unstable plaque, and it's a very thin plaque. So the size of the plaque doesn't necessarily matter, um, but it's an atheromatous plaque, and we need to classify them into stable or unstable. Currently, there's no way to tell. No way to tell which one's going to rupture and which one's not. That's something for the future. This atheromatous plaque bursts and clot forms, and that blocks the lumen. It reduces coronary blood flow, and you get ischemia, and eventually necrosis if it goes on too long. Have a look back through the old textbooks at the difference between hypoxemic or hypoxic injury and ischemic injury. They're very different. One's lack of blood, one's lack of blood plus lack of everything else, removal of waste, lack of glucose. So they're very different. Have a look at that. That's a nice thing to, to have in the back of your head. There are other causes, though, of acute coronary syndromes and heart attacks uh, that don't involve this. So the same pathophysiological process is happening, reduction in coronary blood flow. So arteriospasm is another cause. Um, a very... Um, yeah, it's just done a talk on arrhythmia. It's a very fast heart rate can both increase the myocardial oxygen demand and the heart fills during diastole. So if you've got less diastolic time, you've got less coronary blood flow. So those two things can also cause acute coronary syndrome. So arrhythmias can cause acute coronary syndrome. Anemia. If you're very anemic and you haven't got much blood to spare and it's not going to go through the coronary arteries, that can cause an acute coronary syndrome. So it's not the only thing, but it's the most common. And I'm going to talk about the treatment of atherosclerotic uh, acute coronary syndromes, but initially they should all be treated the same unless it's an obvious cause. Um, in young people, the 20, 30-year-old uh, businessmen in the city of London may be taking cocaine. Again, that's another cause, and the treatment is very different. So, but more often than not, it's this um, atherogenesis and rupture of a plaque. So the ABC, plaque, atherometrous plaque bursts and you get clot. 
and then you get an acute coronary syndrome. So what is an acute coronary syndrome? It's a relatively new term, and it encompasses an umbrella term. It encompasses all forms of um, ischemic damage, and we split it like this. And we split it like this because the treatment's very different. So there's an ST elevation myocardial infarction. So that's myocardial infarction, death of the myocardium has occurred, and it's associated with ST elevation on ECG. So already we, we know something, just from the classification, that the ECG is there to stratify patients. And I'll talk about that a bit in a moment. So ECG, very important, and it's going to determine your management. Then there's this non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome. What is that? What is that? That can encompass unstable angina and non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. And the difference between the two, we'll go through in a bit, is um, how much heart muscle has been damaged. You do a test at 12 hours, the troponin, or other cardiac biomarkers. Troponin's the more common one now. And the difference between the two is that ST elevation MI, there'll be troponin rise um, over a certain limit that you might, your cardiologist may feel is significant. No one's really decided exactly what level uh, of troponin constitutes the difference between angina and non-ST elevation, and non-ST elevation MI. So that may change, but um, there are various, depending on who you ask, different opinions. Okay, and I want to take a practical approach here today and talk about a timeline. So this is minutes going on here from zero minutes up to around the first hour, and then I've uh, tagged on to the end of the first 12 hours. So someone comes in to you, you look at the, the sheet, uh, doctor, can you come and see this patient? They've got chest pain, um, and you're already thinking, could this be ischemic heart disease, possibly a heart attack, and this is what, this is what to do. So immediately, we're going to be going to the patient, getting some information in terms of our clinical features. And if you remember our system from earlier, you want to take a history, and your history, the, the job that you need to do in the history is you need to assess the likelihood that this, and I'll talk a bit about that later in the clinical examination, but it's just the likelihood that this patient is having um, acute coronary syndrome. You need to find information that supports your diagnosis. So maybe assess their risk factors. If they're uh, an obese, diabetic smoker um, with peripheral vascular disease in one leg, they're probably at quite a high risk. Whereas if they're a very young, fit uh, individual with no family history of coronary artery disease at all, then they're less likely, but still possible. Um, and you want to exclude differentials in your history. So you want to go through the factors that you think, think, make you think that this is ischemic cardiac pain or other things, so costochondritis, uh, possibly a pulmonary embolism. There are lots of big differential of chest pain. It's something you should be very familiar with when you hit the wards. And, um, and just try and exclude those differentials, like I've got chest pain, my friend punched me in the chest yesterday, that kind of thing. So you want to you want to try and get those things out because it, it does change your management. You're not going to start them on anticoagulation antiplatelets if you think it's traumatic pain. And you want to talk about the circumstances. Where were you when it came on? Ever had this before? What were you doing at the time? If someone was sitting at rest, um, you know, that, and they don't get any angina previously, and it's a very sharp pain, you know, it's less likely that it's going to be ischemic cardiac pain. If they get angina when they walk, you know, 50 yards and it's been getting worse over the last few weeks and they were doing the hoovering and the angina came on, you, you're going to think that this is ischemic cardiac pain. And define the context. So who is this patient? Is this someone that gets angina, usually had three heart attacks in the past, or are they, are they someone that's never had a heart attack before? Um, and then you want to take 
um, a history of the pain. So this is another mnemonic, Socrates, you may have heard about it, a very popular one. And you go through it from S to S and define all the characteristics of pain. There are variable presentations, like diabetics um, might get a neuropathy around their heart just as they do in their legs, and they may not feel any pain at all. Some people um, may get symptoms of indigestion and mistake it for that. So um, there are variations, but I'm going to talk you through the typical acute coronary syndrome ischemic cardiac pain. So sight is usually in the center of the chest, maybe slightly over to the left. Um, usually onset whilst they're doing something, um, and it usually comes on very suddenly. Characteristic, it's usually described as a dull pain, but it's always worth checking with your patient, not to put words in their mouth, but checking with them, what exactly do you mean by a dull pain? And patients' meanings of different um, terms that we use are very different from the way we understand them. So acute, for example, may mean severe to a patient rather than it came on very suddenly. And people might say, oh, it's chronic, it's really chronic, and that may indicate severity as well. So check with the patient what is their understanding of these terms that we use in medicine. So um, check the characteristic. It's usually a very dull, central, crushing-type pain. Radiation, does it go anywhere else? Does it go through to the back? Then I meet you think of aortic dissection. That's another cause of, of uh, reduced coronary blood flow because you can dissect the coronary arteries as well. Um, so just check if it goes anywhere else. But the typical ischemic cardiac pain goes to the jaw, up in the neck, and goes down the left arm. But there are variations on that pattern, but that's the typical thing you see. Are there any associations? So with ischemic cardiac pain, you're going to get associated, any, any pain, you're going to get tachycardia probably, you're going to be sweaty. Um, you might get symptoms of increased vagal tone, so they might feel sick, nauseous, those kind of things. They're all useful to write down. and. Um, if you've got a very good history with lots of associations, that might increase your uh, chances of thinking that this is uh, the pain you need to be treating. And timing, when did it happen? Very important because all of our treatments um, and the tests that we do to stratify people depend on time. We need to know, are there certain interventions that you can't do, like thrombolysis and percutaneous coronary angiography, that you can't really do if it's over a certain time? So if they had it a week ago, then you're probably not going to do anything in its medical management. If they had it six hours ago, then um, they're very much still in the game. And exacerbating and relieving factors. Anything make it worse, anything make it better, and how bad was it? So when it came on, how bad was it? 10 out of 10, 5 out of 10, and how bad is it now? It's important to ask that. So did he have five out, of pain, 5 out of 10 pain earlier, and it's getting worse, or is it getting better and all settled down? So that's important. So Socrates, nice mnemonic to, to remember. And the examination, goals of the examination, support your diagnosis. Not really much in the way that you're going to find, apart from all the symptoms that we suggested. So like, you might get a um, you might be hot and sweaty, but not really much you're going to find to support the diagnosis. But the most important thing in the um, examination is to exclude any differentials. So press on the chest to see if that's tender. Um, that might be think of costochondritis. That's another cause of chest pain, those kind of things. And you do want to do a respiratory examination as well because there are spiritual causes of chest pain. The lungs are in the chest after all. Um, and you want to identify any complications of someone having a heart attack. That could be arrhythmias. Um, it could be murmurs, if you, you might get a regurgitant murmur, if you've had a heart attack and destroyed one of your papillary muscles. And if you destroy enough muscle in the heart, um, you might go into heart failure. So examine for all of those things, try and identify any complications, because that's going to change your management at the end of the day. So examination is important. Here's our timeline. 
from 0 to the first hour and then for 12 hours. Uh, what are we going to do initially? What's our initial management we've faced with this patient? Sounds like through the Socrates they've got classical ischemic cardiac pain. What are we going to do? I've got two mnemonics for you. They remember one what we do with someone who's stable, not needing resuscitation, but acutely unwell. Yeah, move. Move mnemonic. So you get monitor on, and that could be a variety of things. So we want three lead cardiac monitoring, certainly, because we want to pick up those arrhythmias. We pulse oximetry, that will be useful to know. Blood pressure, we want to know if their heart's, go, heart's failing and we need to support their blood pressure. And some of the treatments that we're going to use will drop the blood pressure. So it's important to all know, know all of those things. Give them oxygen. Um, anyone who's acutely unwell, it's worth giving them oxygen. Generally harmless, although we'll talk about that in a second. Venous access, very important. A lot of the drugs you're going to use to treat patients are going to be intravenous. So you're going to need good venous access. And it's useful to have in case of an emergency, in case something drastic goes wrong. So they're having a, a heart attack in front of you. Suddenly they go into this arrhythmia and you've got no venous access, no way to give them the drugs that they will so desperately need. So venous access is very important. And you're going to need an ECG. You can't diagnose um, a heart attack from a rhythm strip or from the monitor. You're going to need a 12-lead ECG, and your car cardiologist is going to want to see it as well. And your well, everyone's going to want to see it. So do, do the ECG. Second mnemonic, if you are really sure that this patient's got ischemic cardiac pain, you're going to treat them as an ACS, acute coronary syndrome, you want to do these four things. So morphine, give them pain relief. Very good because it dilates the coronary arteries. So it increases the blood flow and it's a painkiller. Perfect. Brilliant. It's exactly what we want. Morphine or dimorphine, a strong opioid. The difference between morphine and dimorphine is that one's very, very more, more potent than the other. And remember the difference between uh, efficacy and potency. So that's another one to look up. But the potent means that you need less of the drug to cause the same effect. So dimorphine, more potent, and makes people feel sick. So never give it without an antiemetic. Probably one of my favorites is uh, metacopramide. So give that with that as well. Any doses that we talk about today, if we do mention doses, uh, look them up for yourself in DNF. Um, this is sort of a disclaimer for us, really, in case we say something wrong, which is not unheard of. Um, so 10 milligrams of metacopamide uh, is something you need to give. Oxygen, I put a question mark there. Um, give it to anyone that's unwell, but the, there is no real evidence for giving oxygen in someone who's having a heart attack. And there are studies ongoing at the moment to, to see whether it's actually useful or whether it could even be harmful. There's a theory that most of the damage caused by um, heart attacks is reperfusion injury and generation of reactive oxygen species. And the presence of a, a high um, partial pressure of oxygen in the blood is going to increase the, that's the theory anyway. So that, that's, we're going to do some studies, say we, they, we're going to do some studies to try and elucidate that. Nitrate. So glycerol trinitrate you can give patients and that does two things. It, in, it dilates the arteries. It causes smooth muscle relaxation, opens up the coronaries, increases coronary blood flow, but it also increases the, or I should say decreases, the afterload. So it decreases myocardial oxygen demand as well because the heart's got less to pump against. And aspirin, well-known antiplatelet and lots of stuff in the press about aspirin at the moment and how we should be taking it to avoid cancer and everything else. Okay, so that's what we should do initially. Um, and then what are we going to do next? We're going to do our ECG. Very important. Has to happen within 10 minutes. There's no excuse for delaying an ECG. It's going to determine your management and whether you need to keep someone in, in your local district general hospital or ship them out to a centre that can manage them properly. So really important. You need to know what's going on with their heart. You need a 12-lead ECG within the first 10 minutes. 
and you're going to stratify them into this kind of basis. And I put one above and one below the timeline here, as we spoke about before. So this is the ACS, non-ST elevation ACS, which we'll go through in a moment, or ST elevation MI. ST elevation generally means that you know, myocardium is dying in front of you, and you can do something to save this patient. Um, this is what an ST elevation MI looks like. Um, I don't know how well this projects, but can anyone see? I'm not going to teach you how to read ECTs, but can anyone see the abnormalities here? Yeah, so there are different territories, aren't there, that we think of. Um, we want to see changes in contiguous leads, so leads that sit next to each other and look at different areas of the heart. So 2, 3 and AVFR are inferior leads. They look at the bottom of the heart, so these three here. And we've got ST elevation there and here and here. So that's really important. And perhaps a little bit of um, ST depression in some of the anterior leads. And the T waves look okay, because T wave inversion is another sign. So some of the signs you might look for when you're looking at an ECG, ST elevation, ST depression is a sign of ischemia, and T wave inversion also happens as well when you've got ischemia going on. So look for all of those signs. But here, it's an ST elevation MI. We've got ST elevation in the inferior leads at inferior ST elevation MI and we can do something to help that patient. Less dangerous than the anterior ones. The anterior supplies the left ventricle and the inferior is sort of the bottom, the heart and the right ventricle. So um, we still need to do something and they need urgent reperfusion therapy. How, however that happens wherever you are, depending on where you are in this country and where you are in the world. <coughs> urgent reperfusion. So needs to happen quickly. Time is myocardium. Each minute you delay, more muscle is dying. It needs to happen really quickly. You need to get onto the phone and follow all the local protocols about how to deal with um, uh, an ST elevation MI in your hospital or wherever you are. So in the hospitals that I've worked in, there are local centers that deal with this. Primary percutaneous coronary intervention. Anyone heard of that? Familiar with it? So what happens is the patient goes over to uh, a cardiac center, maybe within your own hospital. So they might go to the cath lab in your own hospital or you might have to call an ambulance to take them to the nearest centre that will deliver this treatment. Um, we used to give thrombolysis, and that's what probably should happen if this treatment is not available where you are. And thrombolysis is where you dissolve the clot using thrombolytic drugs that degrade fibrin and all the rest of it, and open up the coronary arteries that way. But it's associated with a bleeding risk. Some people can't have it, and this is a much better treatment. So this is what we're moving to um, now based on um, some Danish studies. So primary percutaneous coronary intervention, big third. Primary means we're doing it for someone who's having the heart attack right now. Percutaneous means it's going through the skin, per, through, cutaneous skin. Coronary, we're going in the coronaries and intervention, we're going to do something about it. And what can we do? We can suck out the clot, we can you put a balloon through over a wire and inflate the balloon to squash the atherometer's plaque and the clot to the sides. Once we've done that, we can insert a stent. So we put the stent over and we put a balloon inside the stent and we insert the balloon and it squashes, and the stent stays open, it squashes all of this atheromatous plaque and thrombus to the sides, hold the coronary artery open. So that's what we need to do. Before we do that, we'll take some angiography pictures and decide on the best management. Sometimes patients can go for surgery, but this is very rare, difficult, can't really be delivered um, in a very quick time. Um, but that's what we need to do first and foremost. And you can do this up to 12 hours post uh, the onset. So that's why it's really important to work out when your patient started having the chest pain. So that's ST elevation MI. 
Um, Non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome, remember that included unstable angina and non-ST elevation MI. And the, base, and the way we differentiate those is the level of troponin rise, which we'll go through later, or, or whatever cardiac biomarker your hospital's using. So this is an ECG. So have a look at this for a few moments and see if you can see any abnormalities. Anyone got any obvious ones? They're drawn on. I hate when people draw on ECGs. Please, 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 no one draw on ECGs. It's not necessary. Uh, you, know, you can tell your consultant that you've spotted things. You don't need to mark it out. We'll, you know, it's not going to make you any more clever or notable. Um, but it's just annoying for people like me who want to collect these ECGs and show it to people like you because there's nasty marks all over it, circles here, and people have underlined things. But what they've underlined is actually correct. So you've got T-wave inversion in lead three here and, and in AVF. This is actually the same patient, just earlier. So the patient came in with chest pain. This was the, one of the initial ECGs. So we've got evidence of ischemia, the T-wave inversion. And then they went on to have full-blown ST elevation. So that was an evolving myocardial infarction. And the reason we should be doing serial ECGs on patients every 15 minutes whilst they've got the chest pain, and especially if things get worse. So what we're going to do with these guys, well, we're not going to ship them out to the nearest centre. Um, we're not going to do anything for them right now in terms of intervention, but we still need to keep a close eye on them. There's lots of complications of whatever's going on, and we need to stratify them. Have they had a heart attack? Is this just unstable angina, or is there another diagnosis? Um, and you want to admit to acute care. If you think that they're high risk, um, and there are guidelines about what is high risk and what isn't, I won't go through them now, if they think they're high risk, they need to go to coronary care. And they need to be monitored uh, on a monitored bed and kept a very close eye on. And um, if they're low risk and things have settled down, the pain's gone away and they had it six hours ago, you might admit them to the acute care ward. Still keep a close eye on them, three-lead cardiac monitoring to try and identify um, any arrhythmias. And make sure that they, they know to tell someone if they've got pain so they can tell a nurse so you can come give them some treatment and, and take an ECD to see if things are evolving. Just keep a very close eye on these patients. And what can we do for them? The two goals of therapy, stop the thrombosis and reduce myocardial oxygen demand. And there are various interventions we can do. To stop the thrombosis, we can give aspirin and clopidogrel. Clopidogrel is a uh, thinopyridine and they are antiplatelet agents. And different hospitals differ in, differ in what they give. Um, but they're very useful to stop platelet aggregation and to reduce the size of any thrombus. We want to, want to anticoagulate them. That may be low molecular weight heparins, um, onoxaparin, or a pentasaccharide uh, like fondaparinu, which has a bit of a prognostic benefit as well. So different places use different things. And reduce the myocardial oxygen demand. We can do that by reducing afterload, by giving them GTN. That also has the added benefit of dilating the coronary artery, making sure more blood gets to the myocardium. Um, we can beta block them, so give them beta blockers to slow the force and the rate of contraction, and that will decrease the amount of oxygen the heart needs. Therefore, the blood supply that it is getting will be more uh, efficient. And there is some evidence about giving an ACE inhibitor early on, although I'd say um, it's not always advisable because some of the treatments, if they do go on to have angioplasty, involve lots of contrast and everything else. So there are mixed opinions on that. And also you can give a statin early on as well. Statins, as you know, are HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors and reduce the amount of um, 
the, the, the dyslipidemia that you get with um, atherogenesis, but also they've got lots of pleiotropic effects. That means they have lots of other effects outside of that, and they can and have been known to stabilize atheromatous plaques, particularly where they're unstable. So within 40 minutes or so, we want to review them again after having done that, and then stratify them, so re-stratify them again into high risk or an intermediate and low risk. And I won't go through how we do that, um, but initial cardiac biomarkers, there are different scores, the GRACE score or the TIMI score, lots of different scores you can use to decide whether they're high or low risk. Uh, if they're high risk, you follow an early invasive strategy. So you keep them in hospital and send them to the cath lab or the center for primary andrography to find out what's going on in the coronary arteries. They take some pictures. If there's anything to treat, we can treat it there and then. Um, intermediate or low risk, you're going to think about keeping them in for observation and um, seeing how things go. Intermediate risk, we're going to stratify them again later, a late stratification, on the basis of our biomarkers that we take. So troponin is, if you remember, involved in uh, contraction of muscles. And there are particular cardiac troponins, and there are very different types of troponin. Troponin E, troponin I, troponin T. And when the heart dies, essentially, it releases these enzymes into the system that we can test to see how much of the heart's dead. Um, I'll show you a graph on that later. So that's how we're going to stratify them later. If they end up being low risk, we might send them for outpatient treatment or something. Um, if the pain's not settling, so there's no ST elevation on the ECG, but they've got evidence of ischemia, you think it could be something going on, they've just got ongoing pain, you've excluded all other diagnoses, you think it's cardiac pain, um, we should send them over for consideration of PCI. If things aren't working, you can give them um, a chance this way and discuss it with one of the registrars or consultants at your local cardiology centre. So this is what we do again. So this is our late risk stratification. We want to review them and look at the cardiac enzymes, so the troponin. And this is usually what happens with troponin. Um, let's have arbitrary units on, on, on the top here. And you can look at your, your normal values um, on your hospital systems or in some textbooks. But without reperfusion, you usually get this slow rise and then slow um, drop in troponin release. With reperfusion, obviously, the blood's going to flush all of this troponin out, and you usually get a much quicker rise and fall of the troponin. Um, but it does stay raised for a number of days after the symptoms. But ideally, it should be done later than 12 hours to give the, um, the blood chance to flush all the troponin out so you can test it. And on the basis of that, you can say, whatever level your hospital chooses, whether they've had a myocardial infarction, whether lots of heart muscles died, or whether it's just unstable angina. They've had a myocardial infarction, you need to keep them in, and you need to assess what's happened. So you might want to do other tests, like echocardiography, and try and find a cause, and there are lots of other things that we can do for patients. Um, if it's unstable angina, you may decide to keep them in, or you may decide to send them home for some outpatient therapy. Um, so that's acute coronary syndromes and what we should do, a practical approach. Um, you can look at all of this on the website and, um, and look at it at your leisure and make some notes and things. So thank you very much. Um, that's going to conclude... Thank you. <laughs> that concludes sort of the first part of the session. I think we're going to have a coffee break now for about half an hour. So we're aiming to restart again. Yeah, if you've got any questions, just come and have a chat with us, either Ed and I.